Well, I'm going to thank Jamie Bream and our worship team for leading us this morning. Jamie is our interim worship leader uh, this summer as we are in this transition stage uh, after Ricky has and his family moved back to Fort Worth for him to take a position at Southwestern Theological Seminary. But uh, Jamie is filling in. I'm so thankful for him. He's been a blessing. Uh, he's been in the office this past week and will be with us until... Um, we don't need him any longer, however long that is. One week, five years, 20 years, don't know. So we'll see about that. But uh, I'm grateful for him and getting to know him as well. You know, that last song that we sang is one of my favorite uh, new hymns of the faith. I uh, just want to reiterate or, or share again the second verse there. It says, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life, and I know that it's finished. We sing songs like this every Sunday. We sing songs that have powerful lyrics that boldly and gratefully proclaim the, the graciousness and the glory of God, His beauty in salvation. We sing about His work upon the cross. We boast in Him and we boast in Him alone, knowing that no one else can accomplish what Jesus has accomplished. It's not Jesus plus something that we add to it. No, it's Jesus and Jesus alone, and we enjoy all that He's one for us on the cross. We stand in all of his mercy. We stand in all of his goodness and his grace offered to us freely. We know that we deserve nothing uh, but judgment and wrath, and yet we, do, we are given grace because of Jesus. It's his free gift that he gives to us, even though we're wretched sinners and we want nothing to do with the Lord apart from his calling upon our lives. And so I don't know about you, but there's many times that I will understand it and think about what Jesus offers to us and what he's done for us. And, and I just wonder why in the world would a good God, a holy God, a righteous God want to have anything to do with you and I? Why does God act the way he does in salvation? That's a question that we wrestle with. I believe there's two primary reasons why the Lord has done what he has done. First of all, God first and foremostly is working in salvation for his own glory. We need to never uh, marginalize that. We need to never forget that, that in salvation, God is working first and foremost for his own glory, for his own renown, for his own fame. God has work through Jesus, work through the cross, so that he could be magnified, that glory could be brought to him. Secondly, however, the Bible teaches us that Jesus, or, or fa the Father worked in salvation through Jesus out of his infinite love for sinners. It was Jesus who said in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave. God loves people. The Bible in both the Old and the New Testaments articulates this love of God. And in our small group, my small group that we just came out of a few minutes ago, we were talking about this, the difference between what we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I want you to know this morning that, that what we see in those two Testaments never changes. That God's love is present in both of those. The Bible's clear in its articulation of God's love. In fact, Moses said to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 15, he says this, Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. 
Luke portrays this love in the stories of Jesus' life in ministry. In his gospel, as we've been walking through it over the last several weeks, even months, we've seen that the Lord loves people. In fact, it's the Lord who goes to the poor. It's the Lord who sets the captives free, proclaiming liberty to them. He's healing the diseased. It was Jesus, rather than the religious elite, who laid hands on the lepers. It was Jesus who showed concern for the paralyzed. It was Jesus who cast demons out of those who were possessed. And as we move forward in Luke's gospel this morning, we find Jesus acting in love toward a man whose right hand was withered. It was paralyzed. It was crippled. He is faced with the decision of whether or not to heal this man on the Sabbath. The pericope that we're going to look at follows Luke's portrayal of Jesus as the fulfillment of the Sabbath that we looked at last Sunday. He is the rest that this weekly day of rest foreshadowed. Jesus is again presented as being greater than the Sabbath. But this is not the only thing that Luke desires to convey. What I want us to see this morning is we look at this passage in Luke chapter 6 and see him moving on the Sabbath, healing on the Sabbath. I want you to see that it is the love of God that compels the Lord to seek and to heal broken people. And so if you've got a copy of God's Word, I want you to turn with me to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 6. And let's look at verses 6 through 11 this morning. Luke says this in verse 6. On another Sabbath, he, that is Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he arose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. You know, as we read through Luke, it seems like Jesus and the Pharisees are always squaring off, right? I mean, ever since we got into Luke chapter 4, it's been one controversy after another between Jesus and the religious elite of Israel. In this new encounter, Jesus is again teaching in the synagogue. As we've seen, when Jesus would move from town to town, he always seemed to go to the synagogue. He always took that opportunity as a visiting teacher to stand in and to teach the Word of God and really to proclaim that he is the Word of God, that he is everything that the Old Testament has been pointing to over the years. Also in the synagogue on this day was a man, Luke tells us, whose right hand was withered. The word that Luke uses here to describe this man's hand is zeros. It it literally can be translated dry or withered or paralyzed. And so the picture Luke is painting of this man's hand is that it's dried up and sort of hanging loosely on his right side. It's unusable. And so the man's condition was severe. Now, we may look at this and say, well, it's, it's a hand. It's, it's not like he has both of his hands, or it's not like he was paralyzed on his complete right side. It's just his hand. But you've got to think about the, the, the 
the, uh, the world in which this man is living. This is an agrarian type of culture. And so no matter what his occupation was, not having his right hand made things more difficult. And so if he was a fisherman, if he was a farmer, or he was a carpenter or a stone worker, it didn't matter. He didn't have his right hand, which means he could not make the living that he could have made if he had the use of both hands. And so his family suffered more than likely from a lack of income. And so as Jesus here is teaching in the synagogue on this day, his eyes and his heart are drawn to this crippled man. We might, if we were in that situation, be like the Pharisees, and, and we're just looking past him. But Jesus is not like us. Jesus is drawn to this man. He notices this man. He understands the situation that this man finds himself in. And so he's got his eyes on this crippled man. Now, Luke tells us that the eyes of the scribes and Pharisees also were on this man, but for different reasons. These were merciless and utterly lost men. They knew Jesus to be compassionate, but they had no compassion themselves. They also knew Jesus to, to not follow their rules regarding the Sabbath. And so on this day, they're watching Jesus very closely and, and wanting to know how he's going to interact, what he's going to do on the Sabbath, especially since there's this crippled man in the audience. And so it's interesting that they didn't watch Jesus for the purpose of seeing a miracle in order for them to follow and to, and to believe on Jesus as Lord, to believe on Jesus as the miracle worker, but instead they're watching Jesus so that they can catch him in a situation to bring an accusation against his life, against his ministry. They want to discredit him by accusing him of something that's wrong. Verse 8, though, says, Knowing their thoughts, Jesus calls this man to himself and healed his hand. Jesus used this situation as an opportunity to display his love and his compassion for broken people. He wanted to show himself to be the life giver in this man's life. Jesus also used the situation to teach everyone who encounters him that there's a decision that you have to make. You see, when we see Jesus and we come face to face with Jesus and we understand who he is and we see what he wants to and can do in our, in our lives and how he can restore and heal the broken spaces, when we're confronted with that, there's a decision that has to be made. So I want to wrestle with those two thoughts this morning. Uh, the, the actions of a life giver and the response that we have to make in, in response to this life giver. So let me give you four actions this morning of this life giver that we see in this passage before us. And I promise we'll do this quickly. I know you're probably thinking four actions, three responses. We'll be here till 2 o'clock. It won't happen because the Arkansas Razorbacks are playing on TV at 11 a.m. Right now. But I've got it recorded. Number one, the first action we see of this life giver is that the Lord sees the broken. The Lord sees the broken. Now, what do we see in this text? We see that Jesus saw the man. Jesus saw this man with the withered hand. His eyes were fixed on him. His eyes were, were gazing on him. And he's assessing the man's condition. He knew the consequences of his life. Nothing is lost in Jesus' assessment of him. Just like when Jesus sees your life, nothing is lost in that assessment. He knows who you are. He knows what you've done. He knows what you're going to do. I told the folks in my small group earlier that I'm just absolutely dumbfounded by the fact that when Jesus sees us today, he knows what we're going to do tomorrow and yet doesn't hold that against us. Jesus assesses this man's 
life. Not only his withered hand, but everything else about him he assesses as well. Same thing we're seeing in this passage is what we've seen in the first five chapters of Luke. Think about what Jesus has already done. Jesus saw the brokenness in the demoniac in Luke chapter 4. Jesus saw the brokenness among the sick and the disease there in Capernaum. Jesus saw the brokenness in Peter's own life in in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Jesus saw Peter for who he really was. The brokenness there that needed to be healed, needed to be restored. You see, Jesus saw the brokenness in the leper and the paralytic who was let down through the roof. And he saw the brokenness in Levi and the lives of those sinful tax collectors as he went to Levi's house and had lunch with them. Jesus sees broken people and he sees every broken space in our lives. And this is good news for us. That Jesus would see everything that is about us. Everything that we try to hide. You see, this is what we try to do. We try to make ourselves look better than we actually are. We put this facade out there, but Jesus sees through that. Jesus sees broken people. Jesus sees the broken spaces within our lives. And the synagogue on this particular day didn't look past the train wrecks in order to be with the people whose lives seemed to be healthy and good. What do I mean by that is this. Jesus saw the man with the crippled hand. He wasn't looking past them to see the scribes and the Pharisees who had on really nice robes, who knew how to talk in that situation, who gave the impression that everything was wonderful and good. But we know what Jesus knew about them. They were nothing more than whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Their religion was devoid of relationship. Jesus sees the broken. In fact, in reality, Jesus sees the brokenness in all of us. And we're all, that we're all a train wreck. The Pharisees and the scribes here fail to realize this truth. They judge themselves to be righteous before God. And yet Jesus makes it clear over and over again that we are all undone, that we are all sinners, that we are all broken people. Their eyes needed to be open to their own condition. If you remember what Jesus said back in Luke chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not called, come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. Jesus saw in the synagogue a broken man. Jesus saw this man with a withered right hand. And today the gracious eyes of the life giver are still open toward the sinful people who are broken and in need of his healing touch. There's a second action we see. And that is the Lord, he doesn't just see broken people, but the Lord exercises compassion toward the broken. See, it's one thing to see the brokenness. It's another thing to have compassion for those who are broken. And Jesus has compassion for this man. He he exercises compassion. The religious elite, they were watching the crippled man hoping to catch Jesus breaking the Sabbath law. But Jesus, on the other hand, saw the brokenness within both the crippled man and the religious men. You say, Pastor, where do you see that in the text? Well, hang on. I believe Jesus is exercising compassion, not just toward the man with the withered hand. I believe he's exercising compassion toward these religious folks as well. And so he calls... The crippled man to come near. And he asked the Pharisees what was lawful to do on the Sabbath. What is Jesus doing in this? this? He knew their thoughts. And so what he's doing here is setting up a confrontation between he and them. He's asking them basically this question. What is the right thing to do in this situation? What's the right thing to do? 
Should we on the Sabbath see a man who needs healing, who needs a touch from God, who needs to be healed of this, of this condition? His family is suffering because he doesn't have the use of this hand. Is, should we just kind of discredit that and put him to the side? Or in this moment, because I have the power and ability to do something, should I step in and not just see the brokenness, but have compassion for it? He's putting them in a situation where they have to wrestle with the thoughts that they're having. And so in essence, Jesus has presented them with a question of what in the world would make doing good for someone not lawful on the Sabbath. Think about this. Every man there that day, if they had a sheep or an ox in a ditch, would have no problem going themselves, getting their neighbor, getting their buddy to come and help, and they would pull that lamb, they would pull that ox out of the ditch on the Sabbath. Why? Because it was the right thing to do. You don't leave a, an ox in the ditch. You don't leave a sheep in the ditch in the mud overnight because it's the Sabbath. Let's wait till Sunday. No, you pull that thing out today because it's important. That's, a, that's an animal that's, that's worth something. And if it's left there overnight, the condition could get worse or the wolves might even kill that animal during the night. So you do what's right today regardless of whether or not it's the Sabbath. And so he poses this scenario compassion for this crippled man, Jesus brings himself, brings the man near to himself. And today as we think about that, the Lord still exercises compassion as he comes near to the broken and in need of healing. But he knows more than just show compassion. Thirdly, this third action, we see the Lord invites the broken to faith. Jesus saw the man. He had compassion over his brokenness. But in that compassion, Jesus invites him to have faith, to step out in faith. What does Jesus do? He says, come and stand here. Now, he is confronting these Pharisees, and the man is sort of the way he does so, but it doesn't take away from the compassion of the Lord Jesus. It doesn't take away from the love of the Lord Jesus. He's not a puppet in all of this. Jesus genuinely loved this man, and in that, he invites him to to come into faith. He says, come and stand here. And the man came and stood in front of him. He did not have to do so. The man was faced with a decision to make. I mean, think about it. More than likely, this man had heard of Jesus. Jesus was famous all around the area of Galilee. He's famous even all the way down south to the area of Jerusalem and surrounding towns. Everyone in Palestine knew about Jesus, had heard about Jesus and the miracles he was doing. And so this man had, too, also heard of Jesus. He had heard the stories of the sick and the demon-possessed and the crippled being healed. He knew Jesus to be a miracle worker. The stories he had heard were incredible, but in this moment, he's faced with the decision. He's faced with how his own story is going to be shaped. And so Jesus says, hey, come stand here, right here in front of me. And he gets up and he comes and stands in front of Jesus. He makes a decision. He steps out in faith. Then Jesus takes it a step further. He says, stretch out your hand in verse 10. Jesus was asking the man to do something impossible. But as Gabriel said to Mary, nothing is impossible with God. A man who can't lift his hand, a man who, can't, who cannot bring his fingers to extension, a man who can't do anything with his withered hand, Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And this man in faith does just what Jesus tells him to do. His hand was lifeless. 
He was powerless to lift it and stretch out his fingers, and yet in faith the man did all that Jesus commanded. You see, the Lord invited this crippled man to faith, and today Jesus is still doing that. He continues to invite broken people to faith. Jesus invites us to believe on him, to trust on him, which leads us to a fourth action we see of the life giver. The Lord restores the broken. When the crippled man in faith stretched out his hand, what does the Bible tell us? tells us that Jesus did. It says that Jesus restored it. So the man literally had a dry hand. It was shriveled. It was atrophied. If you've ever been in a cast for a number of days or even weeks, you know what that means for your muscles. Several years ago, I had knee surgery. Ten years ago or so, I had knee surgery. And so I was in a straight leg brace when that came off after several weeks. And and really still had little to no movement in that leg. My poor quadricep, and I don't have big legs to begin with, but man, I looked like a little chicken leg down there. Atrophy. It took months, if not a couple years, for that strength to be built up to be comparable to what's in the other leg. And so this man's hand was lifeless, it was powerless, it was atrophied. And yet Jesus says, extend your hand, and in doing so, he restores the brokenness. It inflated to normalcy like a balloon. The fingers flexed and extended as he watched in utter amazement. I mean, just think about what's happening here. Here's a man who can't move his hand. It's all shriveled up and and small and atrophied, and as he extends it, It takes on new life. It's given new strength. He now has full use of it all in in a moment because he faithed into Jesus. He believed on Jesus, and he was restored. That's what the life giver wants to do. He sees the brokenness. He has compassion for the brokenness. He invites the brokenness to himself, and then he restores that which is broken. Jesus healed what was broken in this man's life, and this is what the Lord continues to do in our lives today. See, when we come into relationship with Jesus, our hearts are changed. Our hearts are restored. He removes that old heart of stone, Ezekiel tells tells us, and he gives us a heart of flesh. He restores God's design and his purpose for our lives, which was lost and broken by sin. Jesus restores us to the way we were supposed to be. He doesn't make us perfect, but he does set us on the path to experience all that we were supposed to have in God's design. Jesus makes us new. And as believers, we now have a spiritual sensitivity that we didn't have before because now Jesus dwells within us in the person of the Holy Spirit, and he empowers us to walk with him. The man's hand was restored. When that restoration took place, Life happened because of how he responded to the Lord's invitation. And as we contemplate that choice, because Jesus says, hey, come stand right here. Hey, lift your hand. That leads us to contemplate the choice that we're confronted with. Let me give you three responses to the life giver, and I'll land the plane this morning. I told you, we won't be here till 2 o'clock. Three responses to the life giver. Number one, I'm going to call this bold acceptance. We boldly accept what the life-giver Jesus Christ offers to us. You see, this crippled man boldly accepted the promise and the invitation of Jesus to be healed. He didn't have to do that, but he boldly accepted it. He did so out of confidence. Now, here's what I want you to understand. When we boldly accept Jesus, when we understand he is the life-giver and he wants to forgive our sin, he wants to heal the brokenness in our life, we're not blindly 
believing that. Right? We're not just coming into this with just no understanding, no evidence, no anything, no background whatsoever. We're just going to blindly walk into that. The Bible never calls us to blindly accept him. But instead, it gives us a record of evidence. Right? A record of evidence. You see, I believe on Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, not because some, some, some dude just told me something about Jesus that I didn't know. No, I, I, there was evidence there, right? I have the Word of God that tells me this is who God is. This is how God acts. I also can look around at other people's lives who are in relationship with Jesus, and they give me evidence that Jesus can change a person's life. And so I confidently believe that. I boldly believe that. And I accept Jesus as the life giver. That's what this man did. He had assessed and he had weighed the evidence of Jesus' ability to bring healing to his life. You say, how did he do that? He knew the stories of Jesus. You see, Jesus just wasn't some random guy he met in a synagogue for the very first time. This was probably his first encounter personally with Jesus, but he was acquainted with Jesus from other people. He heard the stories from Capernaum. He heard the stories from other areas around the Sea of Galilee. He heard the stories of, of what Jesus had done and during this short time in his life and ministry. And so that was the evidence there. That coupled with what the Old Testament said about the coming Messiah. And so he puts all of that together. And this man there in the midst of that synagogue with all of those people around him says, I boldly accept what Jesus is offering me through the power of the Spirit of God. That's what we do. And so when we're confronted with the gospel, when we're confronted with the truth of the word of God, we boldly accept because of the evidence set before us. You see, when we read the pages of the Bible, when we hear the gospel shared, we are invited to respond with bold acceptance of the message of Jesus Christ. And All of this, we're not invited to exercise, as I said, a blind faith. We're invited to exercise a historic Faith grounded in the evidence of the word of God. This leads us to a second type of response. I'm going to call this a biased rejection. Uh, some people respond to Jesus with a biased rejection of everything that he is. I would put the Pharisees and the scribes in this category. Those who were in the synagogue that day. You see, they watched Jesus hoping he would perform a miracle. I hope you catch that. They believe Jesus can perform miracles. They've heard the stories. Perhaps some of them there that day had seen Jesus do other miracles. Luke's just given us in the previous uh, passage, the previous pericope, a story of Jesus doing something on the Sabbath, right? They knew all these stories. They believed that Jesus could do things. And so as the withered man is in the synagogue and Jesus is in the synagogue and this is a Sabbath, they're saying, oh boy, this is going to be awesome. We're going to be able to see Jesus do something extraordinary, but not for the sake of them believing on him as the one who does extraordinary things, but they're looking at this from the perspective of we get to get him today. Oh, we got him in a corner. We got him in a trap. We, 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 we're going to bring this guy down. He's going to do a miracle, and we're going to get to accuse him for it. They hope to see a miracle to bring an accusation, rather to see a miracle to exercise faith. And so they watch to believe not to believe on him, but to reject him. You see, in the social sciences, this mindset is what's called a confirmation bias. This happens when a person takes 
whatever evidence is contrary to their position and, and twists it, manipulates it, interprets it in a way that, that solidifies and confirms their own preconceived ideas and position. And that's what they're doing here. Jesus is a false teacher to them. Jesus is someone who's a rival to them. Jesus is someone who is leading people away from their authority, their uh, 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 popularity, and so he is someone to bring down rather than someone to faith into. That's a, conf- that's a confirmation bias. And today there are people who have already decided to reject Jesus as Lord and Savior, and so when they read the pages of the Bible or when they listen to someone share the gospel, they interpret everything that they hear in a way that confirms their own preconceived biasy. Rather than honestly and fairly considering the Bible's claim. They interpret what the Bible says in a way that confirms what they already have decided on. Or they want to use that to bring, as these Pharisees did, an accusation rather than an acceptance of Jesus. There's a third response that I believe is in the text here. And that's what we're going to call blind indifference. Luke is majoring on two parties, right? There's the scribes and the Pharisees on one side. There's the man with the withered hand on the other. He's boldly accepting. The Pharisees are uh, blindly or or, or biased in their rejection of Jesus. Uh, The third would be the crowd. The third would be those people who are sitting in the synagogue that day watching all that's happening, and Luke tells us nothing about them. Luke doesn't say that they were standing in line to, like the, old, like the man with the withered hand, say, Jesus, we want to accept you. Jesus, we want to believe on you. You're a miracle worker. You're a life giver. You've changed his life. You've changed other people's lives. We want you to change our lives. That's not what Luke tells us about them. Luke doesn't also tell us that they're in the line with the scribes and Pharisees saying, Jesus, you're a heretic. Jesus, you are a false teacher. Jesus, you are a, you're, you're just a guy that's, that's, that, that's, that's uh, distorting and, and, and preaching nonsense. You're not a miracle worker. You're just someone who's selling snake oil. That's not what they're saying here. What we see on display is silence from the crowd who are present in the synagogue. There's no response either good or bad. There's no act of faith. There is no act of rejection. So we might say they're simply indifferent to what they saw and what they heard from Jesus. They had right in front of them the Sabbath that is on display and what they're arguing over, and yet they do nothing to embrace or even reject the Sabbath that's standing before them, Jesus Christ. Right? That's the argument here. Jesus, you're healing on the Sabbath. You're doing what's unlawful. That's why the, the last verse, verse 11 says, they were furious and they begin to discuss within themselves what to do with Jesus. Here's where the plan begins to be con, 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 contrived to work, put Jesus to death months to a couple years later. But the people in the crowd that day are indifferent. We don't really care. We're not really going to make a decision. We're going to sit here silent and indifferent about the whole thing. And I believe the same sort of blind indifference is exercised today in people all around the world. You see, I believe it happens in churches every single Sunday. You'll sit here at Red Lane, you'll watch us online, and sometimes you will just be indifferent to everything that's said. You'll take no side. And I, I don't know if you've read Levit- or not Leviticus, but Revelation lately. 
But when Jesus there is speaking to the church at Laodicea, and they're so indifferent about everything, he says, I'd rather spit you out of my mouth because you're so lukewarm. You're neither hot nor you're cold. That's where the people in the synagogue were that day. Jesus is before him doing a miracle. The scribes are there accusing him, and they're just like, I don't really care. I'm just ready for lunch. This morning, how many of us are sitting in this room today, and we're just like, I'm ready for lunch? Where will we go today? We go to the county seat. Do we go into Midlothian? Do we go hit the fast food? I mean, there's not a lot of options in, in Powhatan. What are we going to do? Oh, I can't wait to get to Grandma's. I wish it stopped raining. I really wanted to go to the pool this afternoon. And you're just indifferent to everything about the Word of God on every Sunday. What does that say about your spiritual life? What does that say about your walk with the Lord? What does that say about your sensitivity to the Spirit in your life? And what does it say about your appreciation of God's Word and how He speaks and wants to speak to you through it every single day of your life? You see, when the Word of God is opened and proclaimed, when the gospel is extended, when a call for a response is issued and you're indifferent to it, you're just like those who were in the synagogue that day who had Jesus right in front of them, watched all of this debate and never thought anything else about it. Just went on with business. Three responses to Christ. Boldly accept. A biased rejection. Or just simply a blind indifference. The song we sang earlier, and we've sang great songs this morning, just remind us of who the Lord is. But that song, that fourth song, it says, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. It was my sin that held him there. Held him there. His dying breath has brought me life, and I know it's finished. As a church, we sing songs like this every single week. We sing songs with powerful, theologically rich lyrics each Sunday. We preach and we teach the Bible in a way that confronts people with the reality of sin. Here's what we never want to do when we gather together. Just flippantly open the Bible and look for some things that make us feel good about ourselves. No, what we're doing is we want to lift from the pages what God has actually said, apply it to our lives and say, now, how do we respond to this? Do we boldly accept it? Do we, in our bias, reject it? Or do we just sit and just be indifferent to it? No. What I'm calling us to every single Sunday, what your small group leader is calling you to every single Sunday, what we do when we meet together in discipleship groups is we're calling one another to boldly accept the word of God and respond in faith to it, to respond in obedience to it. Not blind indifference and not a rejection. Why? Because Jesus is the one who gives life. Jesus is the one who sees the broken spaces in your life and says, I can fix those if you'll let me. I can heal those if you'll let me. And this is the way you let me. Come stand before me and lift your hand. Lift that which is broken, right? You ever had something you're a little ashamed of? You know, maybe it's... um, you're in school, you remember being back in elementary school or junior high when everything is kind of crazy and every kid's just looking to make fun of you for something. And, and maybe you've got a stain on your shirt. What do you do? You're constantly hiding that stain, right? A couple weeks ago, I was in some interviews um, with, with some folks and, and we were interviewing candidates and such. And, and I spilled coffee on my shirt right off the bat. I mean, I come in there and, and I'm drinking it just right on my shirt. And I'm like, good night. I'm, I've got a doctorate and 44 years old, and I, you know, I, I think I can dress okay. My wife says different sometimes, but 
And here I am spilling coffee down the front of my shirt. And so all day I was, you know, I tried to clean it off with soap and water, but then you got a water thing there. And so I had a jacket on, and so all day long I was kind of doing this number, try to hide it, right? That's what we try to do with the Lord. And that man that day in the synagogue, everybody who knew him knew his hand was withered, but I bet you this is what he did. Walked around like this so he didn't, no one could see his hand. And Jesus says, no, this is what I want you to do. Bring it out into the light. This is what's broken in your life. Raise it up and let me deal with it. And Jesus today tells us this. The brokenness in your life, I can heal. But I can only heal it if you'll let me. And so lift it up to me and let me do what I can do. This morning, that may be where you're at. And so don't be indifferent to that. Don't reject it, but accept it. God is the God who gives life. But God gives life to those who acknowledge that they need it. That I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. That sin has broken me beyond repair. And the only one who can repair me is the one who created me. And to do that, i got to lift that brokenness up and say, God, here it is. I'm dragging it out into the light. And I'm letting you do what only you can do with it. Amen? Let's pray about this. Father, this morning we acknowledge that you are the giver of life. We read it in Genesis 1 and 2. We see that in six days you created all that there is. And there on day six, you created man and woman in the image of God. You breathed life into Adam. God, you gave humanity authority and, and, and dominion. You, led, you set us up as regents and stewards of all that you created. Father, even when sin came and broke everything, you did not forsake us. You came calling. You came asking questions. You came to Adam and Eve in the midst of their brokenness, in the midst of their sin and shame, and you called them out of that. What did they do? Lord, they brought their sin and shame out into the light. They came out of the bushes. They answered the questions. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat of that tree? Lord, they confessed. I believe it's a picture of repentance. And in the midst of all of that, you make a sacrifice so that the skins of animals could cover their sin and shame. Lord, it's a picture of what Jesus would do. And this morning, we sat here in this room, we watched from online, and we hear the story of this blind, or, or, or I should say this, this, this lame man with a hand that's shriveled up, and Jesus is there, and he says, lift your hand, come and stand before me, and this man is changed. And Father, in this room, many of us can testify that how you've changed our lives. Lord, some of us in this room, as followers of Jesus, can testify this morning that there are times that we try to hide from you. God, you're calling us to bring whatever it is to the light and say, Lord, here's the brokenness in my life. I'm not letting you touch, but I need you to touch it. Some in this room, some watching online, Lord, they need to come into relationship with you. They're not just walking into guilty distance. They're dead in sin and trespasses. Lord, they need to be brought to new life. They need you to touch them. So, Father, I pray that we would not respond with indifference this morning. God, I pray that we would not respond with rejection. Lord, I pray that we would respond with a bold, faith-filled acceptance of who Jesus is and what Jesus wants to do in us today. 
So God, as we stand to our feet in just a moment, I pray that you give us the boldness to come forward and say, Pastor, I need to put my faith and trust in Jesus. Pastor, I need to deal with some sin in my life. Pastor, I need Jesus to heal me. Lord, help us today. Give us faith and boldness in Jesus' name.